Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Merlo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we start on a new adventure, this time going through the ins and outs of prostate cancer. It's going to be a good series. This is one of the most common cancers that we deal with. And honestly, there's a lot of controversy in the field on who we should treat, when we should treat, who we should screen. So I'm excited to go through it, talk to a bunch of different experts, urology, pharmacy, radiation oncology, and also take it home with our own medical oncology opinions as well. Yeah, and I think that there's just a lot of research in this space all the time just because it is so common. So definitely exciting to get into it. That sounds good, guys. Well, let's go ahead and roll that show. All right, guys, so we are now in the midst of holiday season, so we know that that includes everything from Thanksgiving, Halloween, all the holidays in in December. So I'm curious, what are you all most excited about this year? I got to say, I'm very excited for Thanksgiving coming up. The food of Thanksgiving is my favorite. Can't go wrong with your classic turkey, the gravy, the mashed potatoes, green beans, cranberry sauce. It's all delicious. I do love Thanksgiving food. I'm on service this year for Thanksgiving, so I probably won't be cooking as big of a meal as I did last year, but I'm definitely excited for getting into some more holiday baking this year. Got a lot of baking supplies as a part of my wedding registry, so putting those to good use. Are you going to join the Great British Baking Show? I don't think I'm there quite yet. I'm going to make a, a peppermint chocolate cake. Logan really likes peppermint and chocolate. That sounds incredible, and if you have any leftovers, please uh, feel free to share. Well, it's a three-tier, nine-inch cake, so you probably will. Excellent. I'll be back on Sunday night, so I can stop by your office on Monday morning and pick some up. (laughs) Guys, we are moving on now to our prostate cancer series. And I think for me personally, every time I do questions on prostate cancer in in our Q banks, so many of these questions seem to be related to parts of treatment that as medical oncologists, we sometimes don't see. And yet these are things that we have to know about and we get tested about. And so I'm actually very excited to be talking about prostate cancer because again, the stuff that we see ends up being more of these high risk metastatic patients, but that is a small subset of the overall population. And so I'm excited to, to learn from you guys and all of our experts that we're planning on having in the show in the next few weeks. Um, and I think it's going to be a great series. So to kick things off in the spirit of how we've been moving through these these series, how about we kick off our series with a case? So our case, we got a 74-year-old male referred by his PCP to see a urologist for difficulty urinating, unfortunately a very common problem in the age group. PSA is sent and it is a little bit elevated at 5.2 nanograms per milliliter. On exam, the patient does have an indurated mass that's palpable at the right prostate lobe on the digital rectal exam, so an asymmetric prostate mass. Certainly, overall clinical picture is concerning for a prostate malignancy, where in BPH you're expecting a more uniform growth of the prostate. So how do we confirm this? What's our approach to working up this 
potential new diagnosis of prostate cancer. Like you can link this to other urologic cancers too, because this is the case for a lot of urologic cancers, right? That like by the time they see us, like a lot of shit's already happened. So with a diagnosis of prostate cancer, often this is a handoff between the primary care provider and the urologist. A referral gets placed to urology and in our heads as the medical oncologist, magic happens. But let's talk a little bit about the prevalence of prostate cancer and PSA screening before we get into a little bit more detail on the biopsies, what urologists do, and things like that. So most of our listeners may know prostate cancer is incredibly common. It accounts for 27% of all cancer in males. And approximately 11% of males with prostate cancer will die, but this is not necessarily from prostate cancer. So it's really important to know that prostate cancer is common, but death from other causes is almost more likely in this patient population than death from prostate cancer. The reality is that in many cases, prostate cancer is a slow-growing tumor, and many men will die with prostate cancer instead of from their prostate cancer. So this is why you'll see that the guidelines for screening has been a controversial topic for the past few decades. When we think about screening trials, we should ask ourselves a few things. What, what are we looking at here? Are we trying to improve something like a prostate cancer-specific mortality? So am I going to be less likely to die from prostate cancer or all-cause mortality? Or in other words, if I get screened for prostate cancer, am I going to live longer in general? And this is important because imagine this, if you don't live any longer with prostate cancer screening and die anyway from something like heart disease, did it really matter that you had prostate cancer screening, which can lead to overdiagnosis, unnecessary biopsies, and significant stress related to having a cancer diagnosis? On the flip side of that, we don't measure quality of life in these studies, and if somebody had prostate cancer screening, that could be a good thing, right? If you're preventing metastatic disease, which has a major impact on quality of life with bone pain from metastases and things like that, then it could be worth it. So to answer this question, there were two important studies that really looked at the question of prostate cancer-specific mortality, one in Europe and one in the United States. Both of these studies were conducted in the 90s to early 2000s. The first one in Europe, they were looking at PSA screening, and the whole purpose of that, their goal was to lead to a, at least a 25% reduction in prostate cancer-specific mortality. That's what they powered their study for. In the original publication in 2009, there was a statistically significant difference favoring screening for prostate cancer-specific mortality, and the number needed to screen to prevent one prostate cancer-related death was 1,410 men, and the number needed to treat was 48 men. There was no difference in all-cause mortality. So again, you're not making anybody live longer in the long run, but you are potentially preventing prostate cancer-specific death. So that was a positive study. In the United States, there was another screening study during the same time period, and there was no difference in prostate cancer-related death or all-cause mortality. So it was the opposite conclusion of the European study. At seven years of follow-up, there were only 50 deaths from the prostate cancer group compared to only 44 deaths in the control group. So in general, the rate of death from prostate cancer was very low, and a majority of patients who had prostate cancer detected on screening had very low-risk disease or low-risk disease in general, and this led to the controversy of who we should screen. So with this information in mind, Ronak, what happens when we get this PSA test? 
And so the current guidelines about this have been changing, as Vivek alluded to previously, but the most recent guidelines just simply recommend shared decision-making. It's taking this information about the risks and benefits of trying to figure out if someone has something like prostate cancer and having that discussion with your patient. So in general, for average risk patients, so that is someone without a family history or any concerning hereditary predispositions, these discussions are recommended to be had around the age of 50. And certainly if somebody has some sort of predisposition, then this should be done based on the appropriate time interval, perhaps when that family member first presented with that disease or usually earlier. So in general, then in these patients, if they elect to undergo a PSA, If they have an abnormal PSA on their routine screening, that's when they end up getting referred to a urologist. And the idea here is that we need the help of the urologist to, one, help us better understand, is this PSA something that's clinically significant? And furthermore, if so, does this person need to undergo a biopsy? And of course, the urologist is going to be the one that's going to help with that biopsy. And I'm really excited because in the future, we'll actually chat with a urologist about how they exactly go through that decision-making process of who warrants a biopsy versus if other testing is needed and whatnot. And the important things to remember, listeners, is because this is really important when we ultimately see the patients in the future, is that the prostate itself, as we'll learn and as we'll discuss with our urologist, is typically divided into 12 quadrants. And the surgeon tries to obtain 12 cores, one for from each quadrant in order to minimize that sampling error. And this is because cancer can be sort of laid in throughout the prostate, and you want to try to make sure that you're getting a good representation of what is kind of seen everywhere on the prostate tissue. So in general, over 50% of the core is positive, means that the patient has higher risk disease because essentially more of the prostate has been infiltrated by the cancer. And so if a diagnosis of prostate cancer is made and the disease is localized, these are patients that are often managed by our urologists and radiation oncologists. And there are a few exceptions though, and we'll get through that as we go through this series. So Dan, like other cancers that we've discussed on our show, management of disease is often based on risk stratification, and we spend a decent amount of time talking about risk stratification. So can you kind of walk us through how we think about patients with prostate cancer and how we risk stratify them? In prostate cancer, you really do need just a handful of things to do this. You need the results of the PSA, results of the biopsy, and a clinical exam to sort of start the process. You can get some additional imaging sort of based on these data points, and some urologists will go ahead and get prostate MRI to stage both the extent of the tumor within the prostate, sort of judging the volume of the disease, and whether or not there is sort of any extension outside of the confines of the prostate itself. But there are no universal guidelines yet about when that should be employed. So just keep that in mind. You will see some prostate MRI out there. It can be a really helpful tool for understanding the extent of disease. But let's break down those those three components that I mentioned first, the PSA, the biopsy, and the exam. With the PSA, in general, keep in mind two numbers, 10 and 20. I like to think of those first two double-digit dollar bills. That's the mnemonic I use. So I picture Andrew Jackson having a bad prostate. He's, he's on the 20. So you're considered low risk if you're below 10 and high risk if you're greater than 20 and intermediate if you're between those two numbers. So less than 10, low risk, 10 to 20, intermediate. And if you're Andrew Jackson or greater, then you're considered in that high risk group. So as we talked about before, 
when you're reviewing the biopsy results, the first thing you want to look at is whether or not you got an adequate sample. You need to make sure that there are 12 cores taken from all quadrants to make sure that you get a full survey of what's going on in the prostate. On the biopsy report, the next thing to look for is what's called the Gleason score. And that's the overall picture of what pathologists see when they look at these biopsy cores. Each core will have a grade, one through five. Numbers one and two are basically normal looking prostate tissue. But as the numbers get higher, three through five, the cells look less and less like normal prostate. So they're getting more and more dysplastic the higher the number goes. And that generally portends worse disease, a higher grade disease. Gleason scores can be a little bit tricky to interpret because they consist of two numbers generally. It's a combined Gleason score. Uh, it'll be like an X plus Y. And to generate this combined score, pathologists look at all the core samples that have malignant cells, that have cells that would register a grade three through five. Because there's going to be a combination of different grades in most prostate cancers, they've figured it's important for us to know not just the highest grade, not just what the most common grade is, but to get sort of an appreciation of the most common grade, so what the majority of malignant cells are looking like, and then what the second greatest population of malignant cells are looking like. And so the first number that you see in a combined Gleason score is that most common. So say we had a sample where four of the cores we took had malignant cells. If three of those cores seem to have grade three disease, we'll say the first number would be a three. And if that remaining core has a little bit of evidence of grade four disease, they would say, okay, so this is a Gleason three plus four. And the combined score then will have an equal. So that would be grade three plus four equals seven. So the overall Gleason score of seven from a three plus four disease. A little confusing, we'll have it laid out on our show notes, so definitely take a look at that. As you might expect, the higher the combined score, the more aggressive we think of the disease being. And it's important to understand the breakdown because a three plus four is gonna have different risk than a four plus three. Because again, in that latter one, the majority of cores are showing that higher grade disease. In 2014, the International Society of Urologic Pathology created a revised system called the Group Grades, and we'll have a breakdown of that table on our show notes. But that can also sort of help you stratify what you're seeing on these Gleason score reports. The big takeaway from the Gleason score and grading group that we want you to think of is to remember the numbers six and eight. So a Gleason score of six or less is considered low or very low risk. A Gleason score of eight or higher is high or very high risk. Seven, that's the middle. And so just those two numbers are sort of your bounds, just like our 10 and 20 for the PSA score above. That's great, Dan. Thanks so much for going through that. So just to recap what you were saying, the important things that we want to pay attention to on the pathology report are the number of cores, making sure that we have adequate tissue. So that's at least 12 cores that we're looking for. We want to look at that combined Gleason score, which includes the composite information from the individual Gleason grades that are assigned throughout the pathology review of the tissue. And then we also want to look at other numbers that may show up on that pathology report, which include things like percentage of the cores involved. And that's because we said if it's greater than 50%, that tells us that more than 50% of the prostate tissue has cancer in it. And so we are going to be more concerned about these patients. As I was learning about prostate cancer for clinic, I learned that there are some other histologic features that are also important to pay attention to. And so the things that I had read about include that more than 95% of patients are going to have adenocarcinoma, but there are instances where there are other disease pathologies. And so we have to pay attention to the type of malignant cells that we're seeing as well. So intraductal or cribriform 
tissue is going to be higher risk than your adenocarcinoma. So this is something that you definitely want to pay attention to. If you also see comments about things like seminal vesicle or capsular invasion, that's also a higher risk because this is going to change our T staging, which we'll get to in a little bit. And then the other thing that you want to also pay attention to is whether or not the pathologist comments whether there are fragmented cores. If cores are fragmented, that means that there's a potential to overestimate the amount of disease. And so this may be a discussion that needs to be had about whether or not rebiopsying is going to be necessary. But these are all the different things that as medical oncologists, when a patient comes to our clinic, we want to make sure that we are reviewing. That's exactly right. Thank you for sort of summarizing all that for us. The last thing that we would think about is the clinical exam. And this is when you use the digital rectal exam to try and figure out the clinical stage. You can see why we're kind of maybe moving towards MRI. Again, not there yet, but it is a really good way to very fully appreciate exactly what's going on inside the prostate. For now, essentially, if you're doing your DRE and you can't really feel a palpable mass, they're given a clinical T1. If a mass is palpable, clinical T2. Pretty straightforward. We sometimes can change that clinical staging, again, based on what Renuk was just saying, on whether or not there's capsular invasion or seminal vesicle involvement. And if there's other stuff that we're learning from transurcal ultrasound or MRI, but from DRE, if you can feel it, T2. If you can't, T1. And I think one other important thing that we need to talk about is the TNM staging for prostate cancer. And we are not going to go through the whole TNM staging for prostate cancer with you. You can always look this stuff up. We're going to give you the high-yield important points. The purpose of us getting the Gleason score, knowing how many cores are involved, is to risk stratify our patients. So here's the key thing that you need to know. Low risk means that less than 25% of the prostate is involved with cancer. Intermediate risk means that greater than 25% of the prostate is involved with cancer. And high risk means that the cancer has extra prostatic extension. If you have any regional nodal disease, that's a higher risk situation where the PSA, Gleason score, extent of the prostate involved don't really matter as much. The fact that you have a lymph node positivity of that prostate cancer will change your treatment algorithm. So we divide our patients into these different risk groups. And just remember, less than 25% low risk, greater than 25% intermediate risk. And if you're going outside the prostate, particularly to the seminal vesicles, that's going to be a high risk. And when you get to the seminal vesicles or more, that's a very high risk situation. I just wanted to point out that as you're going through these tables, something that's really unique about prostate cancer TNM staging is that they also include things like pathologic information, so the grade of the tumor, and the patient's PSA. And so definitely check out our show notes. You'll see all of that highlighted there. But that is something that's different than a lot of the other TNM staging that we've talked about previously in our breast cancer and our lung cancer series, for instance. And something else that's really important to point out here is that unlike most cancers, involvement of regional lymph nodes for prostate cancer actually classifies patients as having stage 4A disease. And this is also a little bit different than other diseases that we'll see. And so that includes regional lymph nodes, like I said, would be stage 4A. But any other distant disease, whether that's nodal or other structures, is going to be a stage 4B. So just pay attention to that information as well. And we have a great graphic that we'll include in our show notes to help hit this point home. So Dan, could you take us back to what happened with our patient? Where are we at with this patient after he had been referred over to urology? In our patient, he underwent that 12-core biopsy, and he was found to have a T2A prostate adenocarcinoma. On review, the Gleason score was 3 plus 3. Now, previously, we had mentioned T1 or T2, and here I'm saying T2A. Well, 
That's the way of the world in medical oncology, right? We subdivide and subdivide and subdivide. And we'll have a full accounting of all the different TNM staging in our show notes. I think that we would put everyone to sleep if we went through it thoroughly here. So just have a look at that. Generally, it's it's a good idea to always, unless you're hyper-specialized and only seeing prostate cancer, to make sure you're looking up that TNM table whenever you're trying to work someone up with new disease. So our man had T2A prostate carcinoma, and on review, the Gleason score is a 3 plus 3. When we see these patients, we're getting multiple pieces of really important information. We got the PSA, the number of cores involved, the Gleason score in this stage. And so we've been alluding to the importance of low, intermediate, and high-risk disease. And in this case, again, we could feel the prostate. We knew it was T2-something, uh, in this case T2A. The Gleason score is 3 plus 3. That's 6, so low risk from that point of view as well and PSA was below 10. So all these things are sort of saying low risk for our guy. But how does that determination impact our treatment decisions? So for prostate cancer, the key thing to know is that there's a risk stratification system, and there are different local treatment options based on the patient's risk. So these risk groups are very low risk, intermediate risk, which is subdivided into favorable and unfavorable intermediate, high risk, and very high risk. That's when we think about local disease. And we already said when you have nodal involvement, that puts you in a different category. So that's the last category. And we all know if you have distant metastatic disease, that's a thing on its own. Check out our show notes for a summary on how to distinguish these risk groups. We actually will include something that's more than just what the NCCN guidelines tell you. It'll kind of say, how do you know between this and this? And just look at our show notes for that. One of the most important questions when using these risk groups is when do we get further staging imaging to look for soft tissue metastases or to look for bone mets? And the key thing to know is if you're unfavorable, intermediate, or above, those patients need staging imaging. This can be a CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis, a bone scan, and we have new modalities, which are things like PSMA PET scans, which we'll talk about in future episodes. But just know that those are your risk groups, and unfavorable, intermediate, or higher require more staging imaging. Knowing that, Rona, can you just briefly summarize what the main buckets of treatment options are for patients with prostate cancer that are localized? Absolutely. And there's a lot of really interesting history for people that want to look into this. And fun fact, there were Nobel Prizes awarded for the treatment of patients with prostate cancer just because of how revolutionary treatment had been back in the 1960s and before that. But in general, the treatment options that are available to patients are going to be the following. So number one, the possibility of observation. And this is going to be observation in patients with minimal symptoms and a life expectancy of less than 10 years. There's also going to be the option of active surveillance. And this is where we do things like repeat biopsies, closely monitor these patients with PSAs, consider additional imaging. And in general, these are patients that have a life expectancy of greater than 10 years. I do want to pause and clarify and highlight that there is a difference between observation and active surveillance. With observation, these patients are having a lesser life expectancy, and therefore you're essentially opting to not intervene at this time, but should symptoms arise, then you're going to use more of a palliative approach to treatment. With active surveillance, you are saying these patients have a long life expectancy, they do warrant treatment potentially in the future, but at this moment in time, they don't necessarily need it, and so let's avoid giving these patients unnecessary side effects and wait until they get the most bang for their buck, essentially. Another option for treatment includes a radical prostatectomy with 
or without a pelvic lymph node dissection. That is removing the prostate surgically and resecting the pelvic lymph nodes. And in general, this is going to be for unfavorable intermediate or higher risk patients. Also can consider the use of external beam radiation therapy. And we discussed this previously in our lung cancer series. This is going to be performed by our, by our radiation oncology colleagues. Another option is brachytherapy, and this is placing radioactive seeds in the prostate bed. We've never talked about this before on our show. It is something that we'll talk about more when we talk to our radiation oncology colleagues. And then there's also going to be androgen deprivation therapy. So this is using pharmacologic agents to decrease testosterone production. So I think, guys, for the purposes as medical oncologists, I think the question is, what do we need to know from a medical oncology perspective, and what are the key points that we need to be aware of after a patient has visited their surgeon or their radiation oncologist? There's a couple important things. One, when do we use androgen deprivation therapy after surgery? And the answer really is lymph node involvement found at the time of surgery. So if a surgery happens, and the urologists do this themselves, when do they give ADT? They will do that if there is lymph node involvement found at the time of surgery. So for board practical purposes, that's the answer for that case. When do we use a standard ADT? In addition, adding one of our newer agents, and as medical oncologists, we all know about abiraterone, which we'll talk about in lots more details in future episodes, but when do we use abiraterone in the localized setting? This is for very high-risk group patients, and here's the thing you need to know. These are patients with one of the following. Think about patients with extra prostatic extension into the seminal vesicles or further. Runic mentioned the seminal vesicles. That's why it's so important. We would add abiraterone in that patient. So if it's seminal vesicles or further, add abiraterone. The other thing is a patient with a Gleason of 9. So if a patient has a Gleason score of 9, add abiraterone in that setting, and they'll see us in medical oncology in many of those cases. We get this all the time. Let's say a patient ended up having persistent PSA rise after surgery, what happens? The answer is any PSA rise after surgery should require something afterwards. That is considered recurrence. This should be undetectable after surgery. The PSA should never be detectable again. And the mainstay of therapy in that case is radiation. And obviously in that case, metastatic disease should be ruled out prior to that radiation therapy. So when do we worry about relapse disease after radiation therapy? We get this consult all the time. And oftentimes these patients get radiated, sent back to their primary care provider, they're getting PSAs checked. And really the key thing is the PSA must rise by two absolute points above the nadir. If it's not above two absolute points from the nadir, then we don't consider that a recurrence after radiation has been performed. And it's important to be mindful of all the various influences on the PSA. Obviously, if somebody's PSA triples, that's something meaningful. But that's why we keep this two points greater than the nadir, because there are different things that can influence the PSA, including direct trauma to the prostate. So if your patient had a bumpy ride on his motorcycle on the way into clinic, then the PSA could be higher that day. So just trying to keep the overall context in mind when you're interpreting these results is important. But we do have these thresholds to consider. So guys, I think the last thing that I want to really talk about before we drive this episode home is there's a lot of terminology in prostate cancer that I don't know about you, but I found really confusing for the longest time. And quite frankly, sometimes to this day, I still find very confusing. So maybe we can kind of just talk through some of the terminology. We already talked about the difference between active surveillance and observation. This is so important. There are going to be options on the test every single time because a lot of people don't know the difference. But active surveillance and observation, we've already discussed. 
What about castrate sensitive versus castrate resistant? How do we define these terms and, and how does that influence our medical management? So yeah, fortunate terminology notwithstanding, we use this term castrate sensitive and castrate resistant because as Renick, as you'd mentioned, androgen deprivation therapy and hormone therapy are such important components of prostate cancer therapy, it being such a hormone sensitive disease driven by testosterone. And so we define castrate levels of testosterone as being below 50. And there are these sort of two big buckets. There is castrate sensitive or castrate naive and castrate resistant. And they're pretty much what they sound like. Castrate naive, someone you've never challenged with hormone therapy. Castrate sensitive, someone who is responding to hormone therapy. They are basically a patient who has been given this hormone therapy and their PSA is remaining undetectable. And castrate resistant, on the other hand, is someone who seems to be having a biochemical recurrence, so a rising PSA, either if they've undergone radiation previously, someone whose PSA has risen by that two-point threshold, or someone who's no longer undetectable after prostatectomy. And it also requires that you prove that their testosterone level is less than 50. So checking that testosterone level, making sure that your hormone deprivation therapy is in effect while this PSA rise is going on. And that obviously changes sort of some of our treatment paradigms. I think that's great that really we're just looking at testosterone less than 50 is when somebody is considered castrate. If the testosterone is greater than 50, then we say, hey, maybe ADT still has a role here. Are we actually giving this patient ADT, whether they have a biochemical recurrence with their PSA rising, or maybe we did imaging when their PSA went up and they have distant metastatic disease. They're still castrate sensitive if their testosterone level is greater than 50. Ronak, do you want to just round out the case for us today? So to round out our discussion about our patient, he had a PSA of 5, a Gleason score of 6, so he had stage 1 disease, and Dan had mentioned the T2A disease as well. So he, as we also discussed, was going to be stratified as low risk, and therefore, no additional imaging or bone imaging is warranted in this situation. In this case, he is someone where active surveillance may be appropriate because, again, he's lower risk, and so right now he's not really having a lot of issues. Um, this was something that was just found because of routine PSA that was checked. The important thing here is that since we are opting for active surveillance, and we will go into this more in future episodes, but since we are opting for active surveillance, we want to truly make sure that we are confident that this patient truly is this low-risk category because certainly we wouldn't want to miss the opportunity to do something about his disease should he actually have higher risk disease than we thought based on our initial workup. So as highlighted in the NCCN guidelines in consultation with their urologist, we will have a discussion about whether or not this patient may warrant something like a confirmatory parametric MRI, which has great ability to kind of ensure whether or not the prostate looks heterogeneous or homogeneous or not. We can also talk with our urologists about if and when to repeat biopsies or whether or not there's a role for molecular tumor analysis to help us better guide our decision about whether or not to keep this gentleman on active surveillance. And again, we will go into all of these options in more detail, but essentially in this case, just the take-home is low-risk disease, active surveillance may be an option, and so we will have to come up with a plan in order for us to be able to actively surveil him. So guys, I thought that that was a, a great sort of introduction to prostate cancer. Any final thoughts that y'all have? No, I think one of the things, just check out our show notes for this episode, because we'll include a lot of things that are high yield facts. If you're a medical oncologist and don't know a lot about what the local treatment options are, we'll include that a lot in this episode show notes. 
And of course, this isn't a major reason to consider something important, but if you are studying for boards, keep in mind that they like to test things like common and curable diseases. And so this often falls into the category of both those things. It is very common. And if we treat it right, we can take care of it to the extent that it will never be a problem for the people that have it. Not always the case, but oftentimes that will be. So definitely important disease. Awesome, guys. Well, I think that wraps up another fantastic episode of The Fellow on Call. Until next time, we'll see you all later. Peace. See you later. Peace.